Uh, I get the privilege to, to stand here and teach today. If you don't know me, my name is Colin Hardman. If you do know me, I'm going to try to stay out of weird stories today about myself that make memes and that y'all laugh at me for months. So no, no personal details about myself, hopefully. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm Colin. I get an opportunity to present God's Word. And uh, we are going to be, hopefully, starting a series. Uh, the series is going to be out of 1 Samuel. It's going to be the first couple chapters of 1 Samuel. Uh, the series, hopefully, what, I, what I'm, I'm praying that the series does over, over our lives is how to be a faithful minister of God's Word in dark times. If you understand kind of the events in 1 Samuel, um, you see a lot of crazy things out of 1 Samuel's, but, but we're going to actually kind of intro that series. So, so all the way from Father's Day to, to the all-church service that David was talking about, we're going to kind of be rolling out of 1 Samuel. But I think to make 1 Samuel pop, you have to do some things. So uh, for me in my life, I wonder how many times I'm reading through God's Word and that something brilliant is there, but I, I, I miss it. I, I, somehow I'm, I'm reading along and I don't see it. And, and I wonder if it's, I miss the contrast that God's trying to show me. So in 1 Samuel verse 3, or chapter 3, hello, verse 1, it says, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. And we can read a verse like that, but here's what I'm afraid of. We read a verse like that and we think, oh, okay. But, but what I really want us to see is if you put that verse in the, in the context and in, in, in kind of backdrop, I think what we're going to see is something pretty crazy, and that's what I kind of want to show you today. But I, I was kind of thinking of an illustration, and, and, and Mr. Lyle actually brought this up on Wednesday. Uh, there's a photo of, of the Zambian night sky, and if you see it, uh, truly beautiful. If you saw it in person, somehow it's even more gorgeous. But if you look at the photo you can tell a lot's going on, right? But, and I was thinking, I was like, man, it was beautiful. But if, if we're setting the scene of darkness compared to light and this contrast that creates, it's the same picture on the right or my left, your right. Same picture on one side as the other. How about that? Uh, but all I did is drop the contrast way down. So what you see is without the contrast, you don't actually get the details of the picture. So I remind you of, of 1 Samuel uh, one, or chapter 3, verse 1. There was, there was no open vision. The word of the Lord was precious. But if you look at the last couple of verses of, of 1 Samuel, you see that, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and didn't let none of his words fall to the ground. The Lord's words fall to the ground. Verse 21, And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So if you just took these two verses, what you see is an amazing contrast. And what I want to see us, for us today is, is the time in which he lived. So if you're reading 1 Samuel, and we're going to get into it, but there's this, this contrast in the, ca in the cast of characters in the 1 Samuel. First, you see a woman named Hannah broken before the Lord. And you see a priest with zero discernment who can't tell the difference between a woman weeping and a woman that's drunk. That's the scene in 1 Samuel. Well, it does make me wonder, by the way. Eli thought she was drunk. Man, if she's up there praying at a temple and you're the priest, do you see this a lot? Like, is that how bad it got that a drunk person is praying at the temple and that's, your, that's where your mind goes? So we already see this contrast. And we see the same contrast between Samuel, Hannah's son, and Eli and his sons. Well, his sons were other priests and their idolaters, wicked, immoral men that were greedy of filthy lucre, doing terrible things. And then you have Hannah's son, who is becoming a faithful minister. What a contrast, right? Samuel and Eli. You see Samuel, who has the voice of the Lord, who, the Lord's revealing himself by his word. And you have Eli, who is spiritually blind and deaf. And the Lord calls three times, and the Eli has no way to tell. He's like, oh, I don't know what's going on. So you see these contrasts all through 1 Samuel, right? And what I want us to understand is that in these contrasts between culture and spiritual decay, God still desires to raise up faithful ministers. So what God desires is faithful ministers in the midst of spiritual decay. So here's what we need. We need to desire to grow and minister unto the Lord. 
But to do that, we need to have a heart like Samuel and desire his word more than our necessary food. We need to respond to his word, and and that will determine if we allow ourselves to fall into apathy, apostasy, and even into anarchy. So, and, and there's a verse in, in Romans that, man, my, my mind harkens back to a lot. It's out of uh, chapter 15, verse 4. For whatsoever things were written um, aforetime were written for our learning. So there's things we can learn from, from these stories out of Judges and 1 Samuel that through patience and the comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. So what I'm hoping is we can get some comfort and some hope today as we study and examine the contrast in 1 Samuel. So we're going to be in the book of Judges. I know I did a lot on 1 Samuel, but that's kind of, again, a little bit of a foretaste of where this series is going. We're going to be in the book of Judges. So, so to really appreciate the ministry of Samuel, we have to understand the backdrop of the time he lived. And if you know, he lived in the time of the Judges. So I'm going to do my best. And, and again, synthesis is not always my strong suit. But I'm going to try to do an Old Testament survey in like two minutes or less. Ready? Here we go. You first start, there's six different sections. The first section I'm going to call Genesis. The next section is Exodus. The next section is Judges, is what we're going to be talking about today. Then Kings, Exile, and Return. So your, your whole Old Testament can fit inside of those six sections. In Genesis, we see four major events, creation, the fall, the flood, and, and the folly at Babel. You know it's true because they all start with F. Uh, there's four people. In the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, those four men's lives play out. Exodus, it starts in oppression and bondage, and they have a leader named Moses. Well, in the end of that, we get the book of Joshua, who is, is an awesome picture of Jesus as a conqueror, ends in freedom and victory. So that's where we're kind of set up, and then we roll into Judges. So Israel has conquered the land, and now the commandment comes to dwell in it. And these judges get raised up because what goes on is they go into apostasy and they go into anarchy against this. So where they once were victorious, if, if Joshua is about victory in, in the land of milk and honey, and, and between that and setting up a king after God's own heart, there's this time of judges of wickedness and, and corruption. So times after a conqueror, and before the coming king, we see our scene today. We, we just see how crazy things get right before Samuel call, or gets call, called by God as a judge, a priest, and a prophet. Judges, the book of Judges, takes a, a place over a 500-year period where we see faith and faithfulness replaced by unbelief and fickleness. Where we see the cycle of sin and deliverance repeated over and over and over <laughs> We see the loss of unity and, and the, the rise of immorality and idolatry. So today, I don't know if you believe me or not, we're going to try to cover the entire book of Judges. Y'all seen how I did with like a verse or two, and I went way over. So imagine what I'm going to do in a whole book. So button up, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a long one because we're going to cover all 21 chapters today of Judges. And I see you doubting, but we'll get there. Oh yes, we'll get there. So... If we're looking at the basic outline of Judges, I, w- I would submit this to you. Chapters 1 and 2 begin in apathy. Chapters 3 through 16, apostasy. Chapters 17 through 21 is anarchy. And on your back of your notes, if you kind of flip it like this, you're going to see that kind of laid out with you. And if you wanted to reproduce what I think is the study that shows this, is we're going to look at the phrase, drive out. Children did evil in the sight of the Lord, and in those days there was no king in Israel. These are repeated phrases in those sections that I believe gives us this outline. So here's the bottom line. Here's where I wanted to get to with all that introduction. We're kicking off a new series, our series in 1 Samuel, and it's going to pick up with Israel and anarchy. But today, amen, Caleb, uh, in the time of Judges and spiritual decay, we're going to see how it got to be that way. And we're also going to see that we can examine our lives against this template and see where we are in our spiritual lives. If the love of Christ has died in us, if we're in a time of spiritual decay, or how to prevent this. So sound good? Amen. Come on. Uh, let me pray, and then we're going to dive into our outline, and, uh, and we'll, we'll get on with the show. How about that? All right, Father, we do love you. Thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to stand before your people and with your book, proclaim your name. 
thank you for the time of praise and worship where we can sing about your holiness and your, your love for us. And I, I pray that as we open our hearts that, that we love your word and, and that we would love it enough that we can apply it to our lives and we can be honest about the things we hear and honest about the things you want to do with us. So Father, just uh, get me out of the way. There's nothing good in my flesh. There, there's no wisdom that I have. So God, I, I, I'm trusting you and your Holy Spirit. I'm trusting your word that can go forth and change lives and make transformations. So Father, just be with me. Get me out of the way. I love you and all these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing, um, yeah, we do have an entire book to cover. So uh, to, quote, to quote the prophet um, Smoking the Bandit, we have a long way to go, a short time to get there. Amen. Uh, so let's get westbound and down. That's the godly direction. Oh, good night. These are, I should stop. I should, this is terrible. So let's look at apathy. Apathy goes in your blank. Right in apathy so we can get back on track here. Uh, apathy, uh, we can define it as a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. Ath- apathy for us is going to be look like the dying of personal devotion. It's going to look like the love of Christ that we once had turning into a little flickering flame and not shining bright. So to understand this, we kind of have to get a, a summary of the book of Joshua as we see it play into the, the chapters of, of Judges 1 and 2. So Joshua was this great general who came and conquered, then divided all the land and gave an inheritance to each of the tribes. Although the land was conquered, the work of driving out the inhabitants still needed to be completed. So they, they conquered, but they didn't dwell, if that makes sense. But instead of carrying this all the way through as the Lord commanded, they got to a place where they chose, instead of being obedient to the Lord, they chose to put the people of the land under tribute or under, like, they didn't, they didn't do what they said. They, they put them under tribute. So the bottom line is this, and here's what I want us to see. Apathy comes by incomplete obedience due to arrogance. So I would invite you to turn your Bibles and, and open Judges chapter 1 because there's some verses I want us to see in our Bibles out of that. So as you're turning there, I want you to, to find verse 28 and put your finger on it. Because what I said was uh, that this apathy of Israel came because of incomplete obedience due to their arrogance or their pride. So If you're looking at verse 28, it came to pass when Israel was strong, hold on to that, that they put the Canaanites to tribute, just like we talked about, and did not utterly drive them out. Man, there's a lot in that verse, so let's, let's take a look at it. Um, the issue is God's commandments were strong and they were clear, but Israel's commitment was not. God commanded in Deuteronomy 7-2 that thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them, talking about the inhabitants of the land. God did not mince words. He said exactly what he meant and meant what he said. In Numbers 33, verses 51-53, through 53, it says, Speaking of the children of Israel, uh, he's, he's directing Moses here. And say unto them that when you pass over Jordan into the land of Canaan, ye shall, then ye shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures and destroy all their molten images and pluck down all their high places. God's pretty clear. And ye shall possess, di, uh, dispossess, I'm sorry, the inhabitants of the land and dwell therein, for I have given you the land to possess it. So God's clear, his judgment is clear. They're to utterly destroy, they're to drive out all the inhabitants, destroy everything, leave nothing, and just dwell. But what happened? Let's, if you're in, in Judges uh, 1, find verse 21. Uh, this, is, this is where we're, we're going to hit, right? So the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Ah, that's rough. Well, that's one, but how about verse 19? Neither did Judah, verse 27. Neither did Manasseh, verse 29. Neither did Ephraim, verse 30. This is getting sad. Jebulon, uh, Je- yeah, I think that's how you say it. Uh, Asher is ver- verse 31. Nephtali, verse 33. So you have seven tribes that failed to, to follow the Lord's commandment all the way through. I do wonder, and this is kind of a weird sidebar, but I do wonder if all these tribes, seven of them out of 12, if you remember, they're supposed to be driving out these inhabitants. And they're, if you were to ask them, just man, random thought, if you were to ask them, well, why didn't you do it? I just wonder if they would go, well, I mean, I talked to Asher and they didn't do it. And Jebelon, they didn't do it. So, I mean, what, what's really the deal if I don't do it? And, and again, just on my weird sidebar, 
Comparing ourselves among each other is not wise. Be clear about what the commandment of the Lord is. Don't use other people as your rubric. Use God's holy word because he demands response and he needs you to follow his word, not follow other people's example. So here's our takeaway. Israel lacked the commitment and dedication to stay faithful and full obedience. Just as it happens in the life of Israel, sadly, it can happen in our life too. So here's the application. We must stay humble and never settle our, on our personal holiness before the Lord. Did you call, catch that? Israel was strong, and they, they ended up not following through on the word of the Lord. So for us, this can happen, and, and we've seen it happen. It's happened to me. I know it. There's a place where I get where I think I'm strong, and I know what the Lord said, but I'm not really going to do it because it's I don't know, too hard or something, right? But, but the key that I want us to see, so if you're a person that today and the Holy Spirit's moving in your life and, and pricking your heart and being like, hey, hey, what I would submit to you is, is two ways to drive apathy from your life is humility and holiness. So humility, when Israel was strong, so the problem was Israel was strong. So what does that mean for us? We need to be weak, right? We need to be weak. We need to be strong in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 9. Paul writing, Paul saying here, or, uh, Paul is writing about what the Lord was, was telling him. He said unto me, Jesus Christ to Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So if Israel was strong, that's the problem. Well, they should have been weak so the Lord could be strong. And the verse goes on to say, most gladly, therefore, I, I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities and reproaches, and necessities, and persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. And here's what we need to get. This is the part that we need to memorize. For When I am weak, then am I strong. Understand that you can be strong in your flesh, or strong in the Lord, and your humility is going to determine which one uh, prevails. So in verse 28, it also says, Israel did not utter, utterly drive them out. So, Israel compromised on the standard and settled with just some sin. So don't compromise the standard. God was clear about what he said. And don't settle on just some sin. Because 1 Peter 1 says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Be holy in doctrine. Be holy in belief. Be holy in practice. We sang about God's holiness. Did y'all sing that? Did you hear it? God's, God's very... He is thrice holy God. What he demands is holy people. We need to be holy in doctrine. We need to be holy in belief. We need to be holy in practice. Because, 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 a little leaven, how does it go? Leaven the whole lump. So are you comfortable with a little sin in your life that's going to affect the rest of your life? Sadly, I think our mouth would confess one thing, but maybe our actions do other. So, are we holy in doctrine? Because Matthew 16, 12 says, but speaking of leaven, but the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, a little leaven in your doctrine is still bad doctrine. Just because you got 95% right, you still have to address the other 5%. So don't give up on doctrine for the sake of unity of Christians or some weird thing. God demands holiness in doctrine. Luke 12, 1 says, the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, that's the practice of you saying one thing and doing another. We need to be holy in our actions, in our practice, in our manners, in our beliefs, in all matters in faith and practice. That's what God's call is, to be holy in. 1 Corinthians 5, 8 says, Malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, leaven in our, our beliefs, in our practice, will turn into malice and wickedness. It will get you places where you never thought you would go. And by the end of the story, I will submit to you, that if you keep sin in your life, where you're going to end up is in anarchy. And what that happens to be is you're going to be no longer unified with your church body or anybody. You're going to be immoral. I know it's tough, but you're going to be immoral and you're going to be idolatrous. So almost is not okay. It's not almost okay to be doctrinally correct. It's not almost okay when dealing with sin. It's not almost okay to make Christ Lord. It's not almost okay in mortifying your, mortifying your flesh. It's not almost okay to be almost filled with the Spirit. So today, make decision. Let God speak to your heart and deal with it. 
deal with the issue of, of partial obedience and understand that it is fully disobedient. When we say words like all and every and they become optional or too difficult, this is where we're going to land. When we take God's holiness and, and determine that his word, when it says all and every, that is just outlandish, that it couldn't be true, because we're going to read verses like, like Philippians 2, do all things without murmuring or disputing. Well, all's too hard, so I want to do some. Or Colossians 3.8, uh, it says, put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Well, some of those, man, I'm, that's just the way God made me. No, you're supposed to put off all those things, not keep some of them around as pets. Uh, Ephesians 5.3 says, but fornication and all uncleanness, let it not once be named uh, among you as become as saints, all uncleanness. So what is unclean in your life? Get rid of it. 2 Corinthians uh, 10.5, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. God's standard is high. God's holiness is right. We got to understand that every high thing, every high thing, and every thought has to be the obedience of Christ. That should clean up our thought life. So as we, as we kind of, man, I know that's a tough point, and I'm going to try to make a transition, but man, consider these things. Because it, it's tough because we can't be a holy church if we allow sin in our lives. So as we transition, apathy sets in when we think we're strong. So I'd encourage you to be weak. Apathy sets in when we settle on disobedience by partial obedience. So don't settle on your personal holiness. Have a right walk with God. And the trouble if, when living in apathy is it leads to one thing. It leads to apostasy. And apostasy is your second blank. Oh, 20 minutes in and we got to keep moving, y'all. Uh, so we only covered two chapters. And at this rate, I'm glad y'all packed a lunch because we're going to be here a minute. Uh, so let's talk about apostasy. Let's first define it as falling away. We see this out of 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Um, it talks about except they're coming a falling away first. And what that is is there's a falling away of, of, of the faith or commitment or beliefs of someone. And we see this. Uh, so apostasy is when we abandon or jettison what we believe, our doctrines, our beliefs, and our practices. So in the chapters 3 through 16, um, what I think, what I believe we see is this cycle of apostasy and judges. So in these, in these chunk of chapters, there's 12 recorded judges that, that land in these 13 chapters. And in these 13 chapters, six times, uh, it, Israel is conquested by other nations. So the, the, another nation comes in and they, they put them in slavery and bondage. And six times, Israel gets delivered from a judge who God raises up. The name of these judges, if you're kind of outlining it, is Othniel, Ehud, uh, Deborah, and, and Barak, Gideon, Jephth uh, uh, Jephthed, and Samson. And if you're going to run this phrase, this is where I think we're going to define the pattern. And I want to show you one instance um, in the life of Othniel, but the children did evil in the sight of the Lord. So that's where it starts our cycle. And we see this cycle of sin repeated in each of these seven instances. So what I submit to you is this. There's a terrible treadmill. There's a cycle of sin that happens. And it's, it's almost predictable to, to a fault in these. You see this pattern every single time. And God lays it out for us so we can identify it in our lives. And that pattern is sin. You go into slavery or bondage. You make supplication as you cry out. There's salvation that comes when God raises a deliverer. And then you see this season of peace. But the problem is, I think this connects all the way back to apathy, because in that peace, I would imagine they go back to thinking they're strong, and incomplete obedience leads to sin, and the cycle repeats. And it's a terrible treadmill. I don't know if y'all like treadmills, but I'm not overly fond of them. But this treadmill is especially terrible. So if you got your Bibles and you were in Judges 1, Let's run to uh, Judges 3 and start at verse 7. Because I do want to show you this pattern. Um, and then you could take it at each of those references and you could run this pattern. Um, in Judges 3, verse 7, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. There's our phrase. 
and forgot the Lord their God and served Balaam and the groves. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He sold them in the hand of Cushon, Rishon, Hath, Ameni. Yeah, I practiced that. Uh, King of Mesopotamia. And the children served um, Cushon, Rishon, Hath, Ami, uh, eight years. And the children of the Lord cried unto the Lord. And the Lord raised up a deliverer to deliver the children of Israel, who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He judged Israel out of, the, out of war and went out to war. And the, the Lord delivered um, the king of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed against the king of Mesopotamia. Uh, and the land had rest 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kaznaz, died. So we see this cycle. Let me point it out to you in the text. It says that the sin happened is when they did evil in the sight of the Lord, they served Balaam in the groves. They cried. They made supplication. It says that Israel cried unto the Lord. And you see salvation as, as a deliverer. The Lord raised up a deliverer. And you see this season of 40 years. So what we see is, is you fall out of fellowship. You start to reap what you sow. You start to learn to repent and cry out. You're saved from your circumstance, your situation. And then, for whatever reason, when the Lord gives you victory, silence happens. And this terrible cycle of sin, sadly, becomes a pattern that we most observe in churches today. This thing that loops all the way back around, and you never quite deal with that sin that so easily besets us. So the issue was this, and we see it out of Deuteronomy 4. For they will turn away thy sons from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. We see the same thing almost predicted to the T in Deuteronomy 7. It says they will turn away, Israel will turn away from following me, and they'll serve other gods just like we saw in in Judges 3. And the anger of the Lord was kindled just like it was. And then he has to raise up a deliverer. So here's a freebie for parents, and this is another weird sidebar. I know it doesn't quite fit in our, our context, but it says, turn away thy son. So as we're talking about dealing with sin in our lives, it says that, for they will turn away thy son from following me. The, the effect was on the parents, but it was also on the children. Here's a, a little children's ministry kind of blurb. Your sin and your personal holiness is witnessed by your kids, and the sin you don't deal with affects them. Sadly, they had an example that they followed, but it wasn't a follow of of godliness and holiness. It was a pattern into sin that ultimately led them in bondage. So parents, man, this hit me in the gut when I read it, by the way, that that the things that my children see out of my life, that's what I'm feeding into them. So man, it just, again, this is where it hit me. I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta deal with this, this stuff. I gotta deal with, with my holiness for the Lord. But that's a freebie. Let's get back on track because I want us to see um, why, what was going on and what was God's intention through this. And I think we see it if we read starting at verse 7. Let's back up in the text. Let's start at verse 1 because we see something here that, that I think the Lord wants to show us if we're going to break this cycle of sin, if we're going to get out of this, this treadmill of sin and wickedness. Um, in verse 1, it says... Um, For these are the nations which the Lord left. So the Lord left them to prove Israel by them. Even as many uh, of Israel had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that generation of the children of Israel might know to teach them war. Uh, At at the least, uh, much as before, um, knew nothing thereof. So the point is this, and I want to see out of this. God left some things in, in Israel's land, to, to, for two things, to prove and to teach them. So God intends to test and teach his son Israel. We see this testing uh, or proving out in, in Judges 2, 21 and 22. I also will, uh, will not henceforth drive out many from before the nations which Joshua left when he died. All th- that through them, the nations that he left, I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. So the problem 
that, that Israel had was that, that God left some nations and he, he allowed those nations to come in to, make, to show Israel if they were going to keep the way of the Lord, if they're going to walk. So proving will show you what's in your heart. We see this in Deuteronomy 8.2 that, that the Lord, he said uh, that he led the children of Israel in the wilderness uh, for 40 years and he did it for, 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 for a couple things. He said to humble them, to prove them, to know that what was in thine heart, whether they may keep his commandments or no. So these, these nations that were kept in the land meant to prove out Israel and their determination to keep God's commandment. Because you wouldn't know if you didn't have a choice, right? So the takeaway is that, uh, that your faithfulness and Israel's faithfulness and fidelity towards God was revealed by how they responded to the nations of the land. And it said they also... That, that he was also going to teach his son war. He was going to teach Israel war. Well, what we have to understand is this Israel, they would have heard about the wars and, and they would have maybe um, grabbed some of the stories around a campfire, however that works out, right? But they weren't involved in those things. But God did this. God raised up a spirit-filled man to lead them and to teach them war. And in our passage that we looked at, it was Othniel. So they didn't know about war, but now they got to see it. And, and in seeing it, they got to learn it because they could be a part of it because you'll never learn something that you're not a part of. So in David's song of deliverance in 2 Samuel 22, it says, he says, God is my strength and power. He maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hinds feet, setting me upon my high places. He teacheth my hands to war. So it's God who has to teach our hands to war. And that's even what, the, the, what David said, who was a mighty man of God. Man, if you know him, he was the warrior king. And he said that, that God had to teach him how to war. So war needs to be taught, and war requires the experience. So the, uh, the Lord left the nations to teach Israel. And by that experience, they would have something that, that they would have... Um, they would have learned and not just heard about. So God, this is our application. God has left some nations in the land to test and teach Israel. But just as God has left some things in their life, man, he, he left some things in our life to, to test and teach us. The key is when we, when we get these trials, when we get proved by the Lord, it reveals the contents of our heart. We determine whether we're teachable by our responses and in our trials. So I want us to, to understand a couple things about being proved. And we see this out of, of, of Proverbs 17, verse 3. It says, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. And the, these are all ways to, to refine, to, to try gold and silver to get impurities out, right? But the Lord trieth the hearts. And in 1 Peter 1, 7, it says that the trial of your faith being more, much more precious than gold, you can hearken back to that analogy. Though it be tried by fire, it might be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So what I want us to understand is God's proving is not punishment. And God has things in your life, and he does it for you, not against you. God's punishment will, will allow us trials of our faith that are precious, more precious than gold. Man, that's how you get those, those, uh, those things that are precious. God's proving is not punishment. God's proving reveals praise, honor, and glory. You, you get to glorify God in the fact that he allows things in your life. That's a weird concept to today's Christians, but man, the sufferings and things that we go to, we can actually get to the point where we glorify God in them. Because I would remind you of 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. God commanded it. God, God knows God's allowing it, but the, the, we get to choose how we respond to it. So the Lord tries the heart, but we're also commanded to prove. We're, there's, there's three things that, that we're commanded through Scripture to prove. Uh, we're, we're to prove our own works in Galatians 6.4. It says, let every man prove his own work. Proving will show the evidence of your work. Turns out if, if you go to prove your work and turns out you weren't working and all you can say is the name of Cody, 
Well, you know, Cody won six people to the Lord. And, you know, Jay, man, if you ask Jay, he has all the answers. The problem is that's not proving your own work. Um, it will be evidenced by your work and what you do, the behaviors, and if your belief is worked out into your behavior. So the proof of your, behavior, or of your belief comes in your behavior. Um, we're also commanded in the scripture that to prove ourselves whether we be in the faith. This comes out of 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Good practice. Prove your own selves. So this, this, this proving, it's, it's, you're not proving other people. I'm not proving Mikhail. I'm not proving Corey. I'm not proving Cody or Jay. I'm, I'm to examine myself. And this is a personal activity. But too many times our eyes wander on other people rather than ourselves, but God commands us to prove ourselves. We need to prove doctrine. If you remember when Code Blaze was here, uh, he preached out of 1 Thessalonians 5.21, where it says, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. And, and he laid out that, the do, that in the context, what he's really talking about is, is the doctrinal part of that. And, and it's even affirmed in the fact that we're to hold fast that which is good. So you're supposed to prove doctrine. Like there's a lot of things I've said and you have notes, but your job is to take those notes and, and to do the work of a workman, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, so you need to prove doctrine and not just hear it and be able to repeat it. Maybe if you heard it, wherever you heard it, at work, on a podcast, man, it, they work for it. You didn't, so you need to prove it out. The other thing that, that we need to do based on what we learned out of Judges was God left something to prove, but he also was to teach them war. There's a couple things about war that we need to grab. There's, we need to understand that our fight is not a fight after the flesh. It's a fight of faith. Because in 2 Corinthians 10, it says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. And I think we get this verse a little tangled around sometimes. I think what happens is, is we get to the point where we want to try and do something and, and we use all of our, our, our strength and power and we just go at it in the wrong way, which is after our flesh. But, but in 1 Timothy 6, 12, it says, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. See, we don't fight after the flesh. We fight a fight of faith. And that faith is by the word of God. And that's our second thing that we need to learn. We need to learn to fight according to the word of God because it has committed unto us. We have faithful men here that, that love the word of God, that love to get it to us. And we're supposed to, as it's committed to us, we need to use that and fight according to it. So 1 Timothy 1, 18 says, This charge I commit unto thee, my, uh, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before thee. So we, prophecies that went before, that thou might warst, uh, that thou, by them, I'm sorry, by them, Midas wore a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So by them, that part right there is, is, is all the way back in that verse where we're seeing that uh, he was supposed to, according to the prophecies which he had before. So he's supposed to take the word of God and hold on to it and live by it and fight with it. So it is possible to fight a good fight and finish well. We, we learned this from the life of Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 7. If we crucify our flesh, endure hardness, and not entangle ourselves with the affairs of this life, and we fight in faith, Paul could say with confidence at the end of his life, he knew he was getting offered up. His time of departure, it says, was at hand. What he could say is he fought a good fight. Could we say the same thing? I, I, I'm a little worried because like, it seems like in today's Christianity, maybe not us specifically, maybe it is, but enduring hardness is something that is so foreign to us that, that what we do is look for the easy button on everything. And, and the problem is that, that the fight that we fight uh, is, is in the flesh. It's not after faith. And the, problem, the other problem is that we get entangled in world affairs. I want to say this, and, and please don't let it hit you wrong. You get affairs of this life. Sadly, I think... We, there's a lot of people that know more about the affairs of this life than like the word of God that, that we're biblically illiterate, but we can name 
anything and everything that's going on in popular, I mean, any fad, any, any politic thing, any sport thing. But sadly, those are the things that, that get the lion's share of our study and focus, but never really the word of God. So we can't fight a good fight because we can't fight according to how God has called us by his word. So in summary, don't war after your flesh. Fight the good fight of faith according to the word of God. Endure hardness. Do not entangle yourself with the affairs of this life. I would like us to take away from this, uh, this, this section as we talk about the, the treadmill of sin and, and how we're going to overcome it by proving and how we're going to overcome it by, by teaching our hands to war. That sin brings bondage and defeat. We see this even where it's placed in Scripture. There's victory in Joshua. In Judges, we see defeat and bondage. But seeking God brings salvation and is pleasing to God. There's a way that if we seek God in the midst of our trials and persecutions, that we can honor God and please God with our life. So what we really need is some seasoned, mature disciple makers. Some people that had their hand on the wheel, that have not turned back, that have been proven, that, that has learned how to war, and by knowledge and experience have lived out all that they've learned. Because those are the people that we need to, again, teach back and get other people where they can say with Paul, I fought a good fight, I kept the faith. Kept the faith. So, so if you're on that terrible cycle of, of sin right now, I would ask you to break free from it and, and, and come back to the word of God uh, and let him teach you through those things and not miss the lesson that God's trying to show you. So our last point, I think we got plenty of time. Uh, it's only the last like four chapters. So, I mean, I covered like 13 in, in 20 minutes. So uh, we're like downhill stretch, right? So the last A in our, in our blank is going to be anarchy. Because what we need to get is if apathy leads to apostasy, and we get stuck on this treadmill, eventually the crying out for God kind of ceases. And then it's kind of like, well, I'm, I'm kind of sitting in this mess and people just kind of stew in it. And it becomes uh, a place where we get, uh, we, we become part of anarchy. Uh, let's define anarchy as a state of disorder due to uh, no uh, regard to authority or other controlling systems. This is the place where we live in open rebellion and that rebellion, and I think we'll see it at the end, is going to disrupt our unity. It's going to uh, disrupt, disrupt our practice. And it's going to dis, uh, disrupt our worship. So it's going to lead to a place where we're immoral and we're also idolatrous. So the summary of the last four chapters shows the collapse of authority and structure. The phrase, there is no king in Israel, shows up four times. And that really sets off so much that happens. And I believe the, the, the event of these four, this, these four times, there's no king in Israel, divides into two essential stories that we see. In, in chapter 17, we see the anarchy in religion. We see the idolatry of Micah. In chapter 18, we see anarchy in, in the inheritance as the tribe of Dan gets it's uh, maybe dissatisfaction over what the Lord has given them, and they decide to go out and take other land for themselves. That's one kind of story. And then the second story is going to be about uh, anarchy and morals, as we see the immorality of a Levite and his concubine wife, and the anarchy in politics, where we see the civil war break out in, in the tribes, and, all, and they stack up a whole bunch of soldiers and a whole bunch of people die, over this immoral event and trying to judge this immoral event. So let me kind of, let me rehash the, the first story and let's glean some principles out of it. The first story involves a man named Micah. Uh, sorry, before we do it, I was, I'm so used to teaching kids that I said, uh, this first story starts with Micah. And I was like, can you say Micah? And I'm like, there are a room full of adults. They can probably say Micah. Uh, all right, sorry about that. I should keep all these thoughts myself. Um, Micah, <laughs> Micah, uh, uh, Micah steals money from his mom. She dismisses it, and she's like, oh, it's okay. She's okay with him stealing, and she ends up financing and encouraging him to start his own religion. I mean, wonderful mom, right? Like I said, anarchy. Um, 
Micah finds a greedy Levite from Bethlehem and makes him dwell with him, makes him a father, makes him a priest. And then he gives the priest money, food, and a special suit of apparel so he could be his own special priest. And I think this is summed up quite well in Judges 17, verses, starting verse 5. And the man Micah had a house of gods and made an ephod and a teraphim and con- consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. And in those days, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which is right in his own eyes. In his own eyes. That's, so what we see is, is Micah makes his own religion, but the story continues in, in chapter 18. As Micah builds this, his little uh, house of shrines and, and all the things in it and gets his priest and all that stuff, the tribe of Dan is unhappy with the inheritance they got. They start looking for a better inheritance. I mean, covetous, covetousness, right? They get into the land, and they, 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 they find some people, and they, they push them out of the land, kind of bully them out of the land. And then they run into Micah's priest and religion. <laughs> Oddly enough, they end up stealing the priest and the religion. They're just like, hey, would it be better to be a priest of one man or a whole tribe? And this dude's like, that's easy, whole tribe, let's do it. And they, they end up winding up, and, and so um, Micah's religion gets stolen uh, Priest shrines and all. So I will say a quick caveat. Uh, sad thing about religion over a relationship is a religion can get stolen and a relationship can't. So uh, the second story uh, is, is a, kind of this last section, and it's about a Levite and his unfaithful concubine who stop overnight at a place called Gibeah. It's a, it's, it's a city that, that's kind of in the land of Benjamin, and they stay with the old man, and, and one night, a group of wicked men come by, and they're trying to get them to come out and do some very wicked things. Uh, but somehow, the, like, I don't know, cowardice or whatever happens, uh, the concubine gets offered up to the, to the men. It's kind of like a weird lot situation, right? And uh, ends up getting killed, and a story and pieces of her get sent to all the 12 tribes. It's, again, when you, when you take apathy and let it go to apostasy, into anarchy, it doesn't get pretty. Like, I, I won't go into all the details, but, like, if you're offended at that, uh, God's pretty offended at sin, so we could, we could talk about that, too. But they get, they get this, this woman gets chopped up, sent to all these uh, tribes with a note, and they all come against the tribe of Benjamin. And if we look at Judges 20, verses 13 and 14, Now therefore deliver us the men, the children of Belial, which are in Gibeah, that we, may not, we, that we may put them to death and put away uh, evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not hearken unto the voice of the brethren. There you go. They stopped their ears. Um, the children of Israel. And the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together of the cities unto Gibeah to go out to battle against the children of Israel. So what happens is this, this huge civil war is about to take place. Uh, Israel brings uh, 400,000 troops to Gibeah, and they fight three battles, leaving over 60,000 dead in a civil war over the dealing of a, a Levite, his concubine wife. And again, it's getting wicked, it's getting disgusting, but what we have to see is anarchy leads to idolatry and morality. We see this out of both these stories. And there's 60,000 men that prove that the that the in the way of a man leads to death. Uh, the issue is that Israel is no longer crying to God for deliverance. They're crying to each other to deliver men up to each other. They've lost any standard of right and wrong. Everyone is doing right in their own eyes. That's why I think God ends the, the entire book in Judges 21, 25 with this verse. In those days, there's no king in Israel but every man did that which right in his own eyes. As if God wanted to make sure to tell us exactly why these things were happening. Well, why were they happening? Well, it's because everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. And they became their own authority. And they did whatever they wanted, wherever their flesh carried them. And sadly, their flesh always goes to the same place, by the way. It always goes to idolatry, immorality, and, and, and dysfunction. So... The application, this is what I want us to see after hearing these two stories and understanding what um, anarchy leads. We can't 
trust ourselves in our flesh and walk by sight. We can't get to the place where we trust ourselves um, by our flesh and walk by sight. We must walk according to the word of God. Galatians 6.3, we get this, this, this kind of part here. If a man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, deceiveth himself. So don't ever trust your flesh. Don't trust your flesh when, you're, when, you're, when you think you're writing your own eyes. You're deceiving yourself. That's what Galatians 6.3 says. If we walk according to the way that is right in our own eyes, it will always end in death. It is foolish if, if we think the way that we're going is right. Because in Proverbs 12, 15, it says, now the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. The problem is we don't see it ourselves. So you think if you're going to take yourself and examine yourself by yourself, you're going to think you're right. You're going to deceive yourself. And the problem is you're, you threw away the standard that will ever give you the contrast that you need because you think you is great. You read all your own press, you read your own mail, and you're like, oh, I'm a wonderful person. The problem is if you do not use the perfect law of liberty that gives us the ability to see ourselves, we end up trusting in our flesh. And I say, don't trust your flesh because our flesh is wicked and deceitful. And even our heart Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, or is deceitful, deceitful above all things, so it deceives our, even ourselves and is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, you can know your heart when you put it against the mirror of God's word. Because you know what I found out about my heart just now? That it's deceitful. How did I know that about my heart? Well, because God's word said that. I found that my heart is wicked. Well, how did, it, how did I know about my heart? Well, because God's word said that. So if we're going to, do something. We need to learn to trust the Lord. We need to learn, like in Proverbs 3, verse 5, to trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on our own understanding. So we can't go a way that is right in our own eyes. We need to go according to the word of God. It's by faith. Faith come by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So our walk has to be of faith. See, this anarchy, this time of, of this wickedness and corruption this is the backdrop in which Samuel sits. And I want to kind of bring us all the way back to Samuel. But we need to, like, we need to understand when we read those things like the word of the Lord was precious and there's no open vision, like, man, that is like a short verse to tell you, I mean, think of the book of Judges, what we just went through. That's the backdrop in which God is trying to get a faithful minister because the priesthood is wicked. His sons are wicked. The times and the people are just crazy. By the way, I probably shouldn't rabbit trail too far, but do you know who, uh, who's a Benjamin, a Benjamite from, from that place that we studied? Uh, uh, what was that? Gibeah. Do you know, can you name a person in the Bible that was uh, a Benjamite from Gibeah? Oh yeah, it was Saul. It was Saul. That guy. You know, the, the, the tribe that was so wicked they wanted to defend? That's where the people's king came from. That's pretty, pretty wild, huh? So again, that's the backdrop. That's, that's who the people want in the time of Samuel. That's how wicked it was. But, and I got to start closing it down here. So I'll kind of leave us. We need to understand the times in which we live. We live in latter times or perilous times. We see this out of 1 Timothy 4. Uh, now the Spirit speaking expressly in, the, in latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to the seducing spirit and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy. Uh, hypocrisy. The, where I'm, I know we're out of time, so let me just kind of close this down. We live in a time where departing from the faith is what we live in amongst right now. We live in a faithless time, but God is still desiring, like Samuel, to raise up faithful ministers. So don't let our circumstance, culture, our spiritual decay of everybody else affect what God is trying to do in this church and in your life. See, we live in a time of seducing spirits and, and doctrines that, that promote vain worship and promote sacrifice in, in wicked ways. The problem is, in these latter times, do we stand out? Do we, like we talked about contrast, and I want us to see it. In these latter times of, of people defart, departing from the faith, I would ask us, are we an Eli or are we a Samuel? So the problem is, we can blend into our backdrop if we do not, um, if, if, we, if we depart from the faith, we will be just like the backdrop. 
2 Timothy 3 talks about in, in the last days, perilous times should come. And, and you can read the list and it's a doozy. Like you're talking disobedient to parents, proud, blasphemous, covetous, lovers of, them own, of their own selves. And the list goes on and it just gets terrible. But what I thought was interesting in verse 5, it says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, such turn away. See, there's a form of godliness today that if you didn't know, you could be deceived by it. But it doesn't have power. It's, it's man's religion that he will cling to when he gets a hardened heart and he's apostate and he's, and he's rebelling against the Lord. That's the form of godliness that has no power. It's empty. So in that time, are you a Samuel or are you an Eli? Do you stand out against the backdrop of a form of godliness? Is there power in your godliness, in your life? Is there power? So my final beware would say, anarchy doesn't always have to mean that you leave the church. It can be hidden in your heart. Anarchy leads to war between tribes. People die. It destroyed the unity in Israel. But the problem that we have is anarchy can be hidden in our heart right here. Amongst, it doesn't have to be that someone gets mad and leaves the church. Problem is they get mad, they get rebellious, and they stay here. And they sow seeds of, of, of deceit, and they start turning people against each other in carnal, carnal ways. So we can't be carnal. We have to walk under the authority of the Word of God and the local church structure. We need to know that God desires unity, and we know how to be right with our brother. Everybody, again, Matthew 18. So let's make sure that we hold doctrine and we hold our unity of our church. And I was going to do this whole section on, on, on Psalms 1-1 because I thought Cody did an awesome job two weeks ago. And I think Psalm 1-1 really lends to that, that same pro- progression that we saw. I think we also see in Psalm 1-1. But I'm going to leave that to study for yourself. And I'll really just uh, ask you to bow your heads if we kind of close this out. Um, I got some questions and I would have us consider if... If you need to come up and pray, I'd, I'd be honored if I could pray with you. I know Cody could come up and some other deacons. But would you just consider, where, if, when I say the word apathy, and we talked about apathy, how is it for you? How is your personal devotion? Are you into the Word of God? Is the Word of God getting into you? We need to be humble. We need to never settle on personal holiness before the Lord. We can't settle on almost. We need to deal with our sin. We need to keep walking in the Spirit because there is no almost dealing with sin. There's no almost walking in the Spirit. Have you sacrificed personal holiness for the comfort and convenience of modern Christianity? If that's you today, I'd like the privilege of praying for you. If there's someone today that can slide their hand up and say, hey, can you pray for me in that manner? Go ahead and slide your hand up. See your hand. Thank you. And... We talked about apostasy and there's a cycle of sin. Is this, is this cycle, if you, were to, if you were to step back and according to the word God, analyze your marriage, your ministry, your work life, your friends, is that cycle of sin prevalent in your life? Would, are, you st- are you dealing with the same problems month after month, after d- year after year, because of cycle of sin in your life? Revealed in the contents of our hearts are, are, is when we get proved are you missing what the Lord is teaching you because the cycle of sin you're in, you are not willing to do what's right by the Lord? Are we determined to be teachable as we respond to our trials correctly and, and respond to our trials by faith? Too often we get delivered only to return again. And this becomes a pattern, pattern in our ministry, problems in our marriage, problems in our devotion and the word of God. If this is you today, could I please pray for you? Last, we talked about anarchy. And we can never get to the place where we trust our flesh and deny the word of God. We walk by sight and not by faith. Our walk must be according to the word of God. And are we unified with this body of believers? Are we unified in doctrine and beliefs and practices? Or in our heart, is there something that we just know we're not right with the members here, with the doctrine here? We need to settle those things. Those things do not honor God. God says he actually hates them. Are we in a rebellion against the authority of the, of the word of God in our life? 
there's a situation that you can point to in your life where you know what God's word says and you're not living according to you, to, to it. That is rebellion. That's anarchy against the Lord. And I promise you it all ends the same way. It ends in idolatry, immorality, or, or, or dis, um, disunity. So if that's you today, would you slap your hand and let me pray for you? Father, we do love you. Thank you so much for today. Thank you for your opportunity just to present your word. I pray